Amen. That's you and me, brothers and sisters, because of what he did. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is talking about the resurrection. And then just a few verses later, he tells Timothy, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. You know, honestly, I don't think I'm going to say a lot here this morning that you don't already know, but I think we need to be reminded And honestly, I think we need to be reminded on a regular basis. I've entitled this message, The Resurrection, So What? And I'm hoping that by the time I'm done that we'll understand, so what? And my primary passage uh, text for today is actually taken from the book of Isaiah, which seems really weird because we're talking about the big event of the New Testament, and I'm using an Old Testament passage Uh, Those of you that were at the Good Friday service at the United Methodist Church the other night uh, might have noticed that the pastor there was talking about Jesus' suffering and death, and the text that he used was from Isaiah 53. So I felt like, all right, I can can do this. This will be fine. Uh, Isaiah 25, verse 8, it says this, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will swallow up death forever. Let's pray. Lord, today, as we look at your word, we're inviting you to speak into us by your word, into speaker and hearer alike, Lord. Would you implant in us things that we need to understand, Lord, that you might be honored here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So think about this. What if there was a role reversal and you could write a letter to one of Jesus' early apostles? Instead of reading the letters that we have in the New Testament from them, you get to write them a letter and they get to read it. Now, you're probably not going to tell them all kinds of great theological things that they don't know. So we've got to have something you can write in the letter. So maybe you'll just tell them some stuff about your life. Maybe you could tell them that you like movies or television. Maybe you could talk about the, the new car that you or your family got. Maybe you could tell them about the time that you, you flew to the Grand Canyon. You know, just some stuff about your life. And honestly, any one of those things, none of us here would think anything about. That's normal conversation for us. But if you were to say any one of those things to one of Jesus' early disciples, I'm not sure they'd understand television uh, a car you 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 flew i mean you'd have to explain every single one of those because they're they're outside of the context of their lives now here's the deal i think that we often have that same problem when we read scripture there are a lot of things in scripture that are outside of the context of our modern western everyday lives We don't fully get it. Let me give you an example. Anybody here ever raised lambs? One, two two people. Okay, cool. Um, That's one more than I thought I was going to see. But that's a relatively small number, right? Anybody here ever uh, sacrificed or at least butchered a lamb? I'm going to guess it's either... No, okay. Oh, one, okay. So that's... We don't think in those terms, and yet sacrificing lambs to the people of Jesus' day was a pretty normal thing. They recognized it. They knew what it was talking about. But I want you to think about this. 
Back in Jesus' day, at the temple, every day, two lambs were sacrificed. According to Exodus 29, that was the way that was supposed to be done. But at the time of the Passover, conservative estimates are that in a relatively short time, tens of thousands of lambs would have been sacrificed. We're talking lots of stuff going on here. And whenever a lamb was sacrificed, the priest would blow the shofar, the ram's horn, and people knew what that meant. It meant that a lamb had just been sacrificed and it was sacrificed for someone's sins. Now, we don't have any actual number of uh, how many people in Israel would have raised lambs, but it was not the majority of people, okay? Most people, when they did that that Passover pilgrimage going to Jerusalem, they went as a family, and when they got there, they'd have to buy a lamb for that sacrifice. So I want you to try to imagine this for a moment with your family. If you're older uh, and your kids are grown, maybe when your kids were younger, or maybe for any of us here, uh, when you were a kid, you're going to Jerusalem, you get there, and you have to get a lamb. Now, you know, I'm thinking about what this looks like. Think about this. Every Christmas, we go out and we buy a dead tree. And what do we do? We go to a Christmas tree lot to get it. It's the only time of year that that happens because it's a special occasion. They have to have thousands of lambs in Jerusalem. I'm guessing they have lamb lots. Work with me here. So you get to Jerusalem and you go to Bernie's lamb lot. And what happens as the family, dad's over there haggling with Bernie about the price of the lamb, right? And what are the kids doing? You all know what the kids are doing. Kind of hanging out with the lamb. Oh, this one's cute. Yeah. So by the time you actually get that lamb, we've already formed a relationship with this lamb. Now we have to stand in line at the temple. You don't just walk up. I mean, with all of the people there, you got to wait your turn. So there's hundreds of people there and you all got your lambs and there's, there's lamb is cute over there. And, but here's the deal. When you, get to the, when you get to the front, if dad and the priest really does what they're supposed to do, they explain to the kids that this lamb is gonna die for your sins. The bad things that you have done are being put on that lamb and he's taking the penalty that you deserve. Every Jewish kid would have heard that over and over and over. They knew what it meant. And we need to remember the point that sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, it says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. But in that culture, they also understood the idea of a, a lamb bearing their sins. So when Peter, in his first letter, talked about the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, they knew exactly what that meant. When, when Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, Christ, our Passover lamb has been slain, the people knew what that meant. He was taking their sins upon himself. Jesus bridged that chasm between us and God, that separation. He paid our penalty. 
Jesus gave his perfect life for our salvation. That's why the Bible says that, that there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. Only the perfect son of God could redeem the world. And he did. When Jesus breathed his last on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. What he's saying is the, the penalty was paid. It was done, over, mission completed. It was through. He had done what he came to do. We were redeemed, bought back from death to life. The, the theological term is substitutionary atonement. It's what those lambs did back then. They took the sin. But see, Jesus didn't just do it once for one person. No, he did it once for all of us for all time. Think about it this way. Prior to Jesus' death on the cross, God could open the records of heaven and looking forward, find your record and it would say guilty of sin. You and I stood condemned. And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, literally, his records were transferred to us and our records were transferred to his. And so now, if you know the Lord is your Savior, what that means is the Father can look at those records and it says, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. So that's what the cross did. So that's all the cross. So if we're justified through the cross, then what's the big deal about the resurrection? Well, some theologians would say that the resurrection is the, is the Father's stamp of approval on what Jesus did. That he did it, he, he accomplished the mission. And that's true. But there's more to it than that. Because what it really causes us to recognize, think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. What did God say there before they sinned? The day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Now clearly, it was not an immediate physical death. And yet, when they sinned, something progressively began to die in Adam and Eve. The, because of sin, the enemy of mankind is death. It has been our nemesis from the very beginning since sin came into the world. And Jesus, rising from the dead, said, I have overcome that enemy. Death is no longer an issue for us as God's people because Jesus has conquered it. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Beloved, the dying Christ has purchased for us our justification, but the risen Christ will see that we get it. I like that. 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the, imperishable puts on, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because Jesus rose from the grave, death no longer has that sting. It no longer has that victory. Death for us as believers is only a temporary issue. Remember Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death 
forever. The resurrection, so what? So everything for us as believers in Christ because we have the victory, the ultimate and final victory because of what Jesus did. You might remember the, uh, the television show Sesame Street. Is that still on? Okay, sorry, so is what I know. Um, one of the first four human characters on that show was Mr. Hooper. Mr. Hooper, okay, you can get rid of him now. That was good. Um, it, many years ago, the, the guy that played the character Mr. Hooper on Sesame Street passed away. And so the producers were left with kind of a dilemma. How do, we, how do we explain that this guy is gone, that he died to the millions of kids that watch this show? And so they talked to some child psychologists and asked them, what do we say or not say? And the child psychologist don't, said, don't say that Mr. Hooper got sick and died because every little kid gets sick and they're gonna be afraid that's gonna happen to them. And don't say that Mr. Hooper was old and died because every little kid thinks their parents are old. Um, so, so, so don't use those things. So, so the producers decided to just stick with some, some basic kind of things. He's gone, he won't be back, he's gonna be missed. So on the show where they're gonna, gonna kind of introduce this whole idea, they, they said it, and then later in the show, apparently Big Bird came and he said he had a picture for Mr. Hooper, and one of the, one of the characters there says, well, Big Bird, don't you remember we, we told you that Mr. Hooper died? And, and Big Bird says, oh, oh yeah, that's right. Well, I'll just wait till he comes back. And so one of the characters comes over and puts his arm around Big Bird and says, Big Bird, he, he's, he's not coming back. Well, why not? Big Bird, when people die, they don't come back. When people die, they don't come back. Now, on one level, I understand that. But on another level, what a sad and tragic thing to teach children. Because it's simply not true. Because of the resurrection, we will be reunited. We have hope that the world doesn't have. There is a resurrection. The resurrection, so what? So everything for us as believers. Here's the account of the resurrection from John's gospel. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out and with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded into place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him 
and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You know what? Jesus is alive! He is risen! Amen. The late Dr. W.A. Criswell was a renowned pastor in the Southern Baptist denomination. He was twice the head during his ministry. He was twice the head of the Southern Baptist denomination. And Criswell told, told the story of flying on an airplane once and he sat next to a, a seminary professor who was a well-known theologian and the, the seminary professor told, him that, told Criswell that just recently his young son had passed away had come home with a fever from school and they thought it was just one of those childhood things but it was actually a, a deadly form of meningitis when they finally recognized there was something wrong they took him to the doctor and the doctor said I, I'm sorry there's nothing that we can do and so the the man sat next to his son next to his bed and just tried to comfort him in his last hours it was the middle of the day and the young man's vision began to get cloudy the boy's vision began to get cloudy and dark and he looked at his dad he said daddy it's getting dark isn't it his father said yes son it is getting dark very dark daddy I guess it's time for me to go to sleep isn't it yes son it is time for you to go to sleep and the the theologian told Dr. Criswell that his son would when he went to sleep, he would fix his pillow just so and he would put his head on his hands. And he did that. He laid his head down and he looked at his daddy and he said, Daddy, I'll see you in the morning. And he closed his eyes. And it was just a short time later, he stepped over into heaven. And the man stopped talking to Dr. Criswell for a few moments there on the plane. He turned and just looked out the window. But he turned back, tears running down his face. He said, Dr. Criswell, I can't wait for in the morning. I'm looking forward to that. Some of you here are in that same boat. People that you know have gone on to glory. I've got some good news for you. The morning is coming. There is a resurrection. There is a hope for us. The Apostle Paul gave a tremendous promise to the third church at Thessalonica. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. Yes, he will. Morning is coming. Morning is coming. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain, or your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And by the way, that, that phrase there, you're still in your sins. You know, Scripture frequently in the New Testament talks about us being in Christ. Well, the opposite of that is that we're in, in our sins. 
So this is for those that are not in Christ, then we're still in our sins. That's what he's saying here. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, if you just stop right there, this is an awful picture that Paul has just painted. But his next 10 words change the whole thing. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Isaiah 25 again, he will swallow up death forever yes he will peter on that great day of pentecost sermon of his he said god raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it love that it was not possible for him to be held by death no he overcame it the book of revelation jesus declares i am the one who lives i was dead but look i am alive forever and ever and i hold the keys to death and to the place of the dead because Christ rose from the dead, we have hope. You and I have hope. We're going to see others in the morning. The resurrection, so what? So everything for you and me. He will swallow up death forever. You know, I wasn't there when Christ rose from the grave, contrary to what my kids think of my age. But I believe that the resurrection happened. I believe it with all my heart. And I got a couple of reasons for believing that. And I shared this a few years ago uh, when I preached on Easter Sunday, but I think it's worth repeating. I wasn't there when the Germans surrendered at the end of World War II. But I believe that it happened. And I've got two reasons that I believe it ha- that it happened. One is because there were people who were there, eyewitnesses, who declared that it happened. My father was actually in Europe in the army at the end of the war. People like him actually fought in the battles. They have told the stories that indeed the Allies won that war. So I believe based on the testimonies of people that were there. But I also believe because our world is very different than if the Germans would have won. And we likely would not be a free society. Certainly other societies would not be free. Our world is very, very different. There would be far more oppressed people today than there are now. Our world is very different because the allies won that war so i believe because of the eyewitness testimonies i also believe because of the results that we see as as, because of that victory i wasn't there when jesus rose from the dead but i believe it with all my heart and i have two reasons for believing it because of the eyewitness accounts there were actually people that were there who said that indeed jesus did rise from the dead all four gospel writers the apostle peter the apostle paul on and on Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I love the fact that Paul keeps bringing us back to what the Scriptures had declared actually happened. And then He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the eyewitnesses saw Jesus. They give testimony to what actually happened, that he rose from the dead. But I also believe, because our world is different, because Jesus is alive. Think about this. Back in the early ancient Roman Empire, when a major plague hit the Christians 
had way higher survival rates than others because most of the Roman citizens, if somebody in their household contracted the plague, what they did is they kicked them out. They didn't want to have any contact with them because they didn't want to contract the disease from them. So they just put them out into the streets. The Christians, on the other hand, knew that Jesus had overcome death. They weren't afraid of death. And so they nursed people in their homes. And so they had a much higher survival rate than the others because they weren't afraid of death because they knew that Jesus had overcome death. Think about this. It was Easter Sunday, 1973. The nation of Uganda was under the control of a madman named Idi Amin. Some of you would remember this. And at least one of Amin's atrocities from his reign of terror, if you will, was still embedded into the mind of a pastor named Kifa Sempanji. Sempanji had watched as a brother in Christ, had been cruelly beaten, was stomped by the soldiers, crushing his bones, and was burned beyond recognition, all for the crime of being a follower of Christ. So shortly after that, Easter morning, 1973, Kifa Sempanji openly and bravely preached to 7,000 people in their town's soccer stadium about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. After the service, he was followed back to his church by five of Idi Amin's secret police. He went into the church building and they followed him and closed the door and immediately five rifles were aimed at him. And the leader said, we're going to kill you for disobeying Amin's orders. If you have something to say, say it before you die. And Sempanji, in recollecting this, admitted that he was afraid. He thought of his wife and their young daughter. But then something happened on the inside, rose up in him. The risen Lord gave him the courage to speak. And he said, do what you must. The word of God says that in Christ, I'm already dead and that my real life is hidden with him and God. It's not my life that's in danger, but yours. I'm alive in the risen Lord, but you're still dead in your sins. May he spare you from eternal destruction. The leader of the group stared at Sempanji for a few minutes, finally lowered his gun and said, would you pray for us? And Sempanji did. And those five were converted right there because Kifa Sempanji knew the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I believe because of the eyewitness testimonies, but I also believe because our world is vastly different because Jesus rose from the dead. You could tell me your own stories there are millions of people out there right now, and that's not even talking about the ones that have already gone on to glory, whose lives have been greatly impacted because Jesus rose from the dead. I believe because of that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We've got something greater waiting for us. But I want you to notice what this doesn't say in those first three words. It doesn't say for we think. It doesn't say for we hope. It doesn't even say for we believe. 
It says, for we know. Every translation I looked at used the same word, no. It's not a guess, it's not a, not a hope like, like our society thinks of hope. We, we, we kind of hope it's gonna happen. No, we know. That's why Isaiah could state so emphatically, he will swallow up death forever. That's what Jesus did. He's alive. An almost final thought. This is the first of two closings. I've been told that on Good Friday that every Greek Orthodox church has a service and that after the service is finished in the sanctuary, they carry a picture, a, a painting of Christ along with flowers and candles out into the town square and have the finish of the service there. And then the, the Saturday night, there's a second service that's held actually in the sanctuary just before midnight, and it begins and everything is completely dark. And then one single lit candle appears in the sanctuary, and all of the people have their own candles and they light it from that candle, kind of like what we do here on, on Christmas Eve, only their celebration is a little bit different. Bells ring, fireworks go off, um, all because of the resurrection. But then, I think this is kind of cool, each person carries their lit candle home with them. And it's symbolically saying we are taking the truth that we know out into the world. That's what we need to be doing. We know the truth. We need to be carrying it out there. The, the, the gospel, what does gospel mean? Good news. What, what do you do with news? You tell it. You share it around, right? Gospel says that people can know God because of what Jesus did. He, 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 he redeemed us and then he rose from the grave to draw us to himself. People need to know because of Jesus' death and resurrection they can have life. Isaiah said he will swallow up death forever. I would just add that you know, that was 700 years before Jesus actually visibly, physically was here on earth. And so if we were gonna be technically accurate today, we would say he has swallowed up death forever. He has. Final closing. man named William Sangster is regarded by many as one of the greatest preachers that ever lived in the 1940s. His church in London every Sunday morning and Sunday evening was filled to capacity with over 3,000 people per service. That would be a very large church today. Back then it was almost unprecedented. Toward the end of his life though, he was diagnosed with progressive muscular atrophy. It's a, uh, an incurable neurological disease. And his daughter said this, gradually his legs became useless and his voice, that melodious organ that had thrilled thousands, went completely. Speechless and helpless, he could still hold a pen. And he did that. And he held that pen and he used it really well. Easter Sunday, he was sitting looking out his window with his ever-present notepad and he wrote this. It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Amen. He is risen! He is risen Amen. Let's worship.